In this last lecture, I'd like to consider the notion of wisdom as philo uh, philosophy as wisdom according to Aquinas. I will argue that such philosophical wisdom entails a kind of perspective on reality understood in light of its most ultimate causes. However, it also entails an interpretation of the hierarchy of being among things found within creation. After presenting this general viewpoint, I will consider some important objections to Aquinas' metaphysics from Hume, Kant, and neo-Darwinian naturalism to suggest ways that Thomistic metaphysics can respond to these objections in intellectually responsible and compelling ways. So let me begin with philosophy as wisdom. <clears throat> we should begin by recalling the obvious. The Greek term philosophia means literally friendliness to wisdom, friendship with wisdom. The idea of wisdom is intrinsic to ancient philosophy, but of course what this wisdom is is greatly debated even among the Greek philosophers themselves. We might initially define it this way following Aquinas. Philosophy first becomes a form of wisdom when it attains knowledge of ultimate explanations and allows us to clarify what is most ultimately real. It is at this juncture that, secondly, then, philosophy permits us to make practical judgments about how we ought to live in light of what is most ultimately real. So if you remember the two tables that Professor Sherwin presented of the, the speculative syllogism and the practical syllogism, the habit of wisdom, the habitus of wisdom, is about making those two kinds of syllogisms in ways that are deeply integrated and related to each other. Not just, this is an innocent man, don't kill this man, but this is what is ultimately true. Here is how I should live in light of what is ultimately true. Note that this definition works across a spectrum of different philosophies. It's a definition of wisdom that can work for non-Thomistic philosophy. Clearly, Aquinas thinks that God is the ultimate metaphysical explanation of reality, and that it is when the philosopher becomes aware of God that he or she is able to gain perspective on what is most ultimately real or what the most ultimate cause of all other reality is. And in turn, this knowledge allows the philosopher to order his or her life practically in a certain way in light of the knowledge of God, but also in light of the knowledge of what human beings are as rational animals capable of ordering their lives in the light of what is best in themselves, reason and love in the search for the truth and in the search for an ethically noble life, a life of wisdom. However, one could also employ this general definition of wisdom for other forms of metaphysics. A person might think of some form of materialism, is that, a, that a form of materialism is speculatively demonstrable and that we should order our lives practically in light of a kind of materialistic ethics. The thought of the Oxford philosopher Derek Parfit, who is a materialist, and a, a utilitarian ethicist would be a good example of a form of alternative wisdom incompatible with Aristotle or Aquinas, but internally coherent as a way of looking at the world. It's a different form of wisdom, an in incompatible wisdom. But nevertheless, interestingly, Aquinas' definition seems to work. It's a, a way of life based on a, a conviction about what is ultimately real. It's a very general definition. The advantage of very general definitions are they work for many things. Okay. In the Nicomachean Ethics, Book 6, Aristotle depicts wisdom, Sophia in Greek, as an ultimate intellectual virtue or theoretical virtue that stems from, in Greek, episteme, or philosophical science, explanation of the world. Aquinas follows Aristotle in this, war, in this regard. Science here, of course, does not denote the modern empirical sciences, but is associated with the philosophical quest for rigorous analytical explanation of reality by recourse to causes. When we know the causes of things, we can explain what things are fundamentally and why they are. The ultimate philosophical science is metaphysics, because metaphysics seeks to uncover the causes of being as such, that is to say, ultimate causes. These causes can be intrinsic, intrinsic to things themselves, like form and matter, substance and accidents, being and act and being in potentiality, essence and existence, in the things themselves, principles of being. They can also be extrinsic causes, as when we note 
that the very existence of each thing we experience depends upon the being and activity of other realities that act upon it. This leads to the question of the ultimate extrinsic cause of all things, God, understood as a transcendent extrinsic cause that gives existence to all created realities, creating and sustaining and being all it is. Now, wisdom emerges from such philosophical science of explanation organically for Aquinas. You could say scientia or science, uh, philosophical explanation just becomes wisdom. Because wisdom arises when we come to a knowledge of what is genuinely first. First in reality, not from our point of view, but in, in, according to the very structure of reality itself. This knowledge can be imperfect, indirect, and inferential, but it still yields ultimate explanations. If God is the ultimate cause of all that exists, then this casts a light philosophically upon the rest of reality, and allows us to understand all things in relation to their ultimate cause. For Aquinas, this gives rise to a kind of contemplative exercise. He speaks frequently of the happiness or beatitude that the philosopher attains by thinking about the truth in general. There's happiness in seeking the truth. You're alive when you're seeking the truth. But especially by thinking about the ultimate truth and of all things seen in light of the ultimate truth. It is in this sense that following Aristotle, Aquinas characterizes the philosophical contemplation of God as a kind of intellectual perfection, one that fulfills, in some sense, the natural human quest for the truth. Now, of course, this may strike us as very religious, and perhaps we might think that it pertains primarily or exclusively to a perspective of Christian theology, one that Aquinas has artificially projected into his project of philosophy, perhaps for apologetic reasons. However, to be clear, Aquinas is well aware of such an objection, and indeed knows of Christian theologians in his own day who do hold that the only true wisdom comes about by means of divine revelation and the Christian religion. Aquinas rejects this point of view. While Aquinas, as a Christian theologian, does believe in divine revelation and that the perspective of supernatural faith is higher than that of philosophy, he also affirms that philosophical metaphysics as such, taken precisely as philosophy, is capable of attaining to the kind of wisdom perspective I have briefly denoted above. In fact, the programmatic aim of the Summa Contra Gentiles, book one through three, is to provide a properly philosophical rational defense of monotheism and a philosophical perspective on creation, human beings as rational animals, and all non-rational creatures subordinate to human beings, all within a unified metaphysical perspective. This is what Aquinas is indicating ultimately when he speaks of philosophical wisdom. His philosophy is that of a medieval Christian thinker and is religious in its ultimate horizons but it is an internally coherent vision of philosophy as such. And very self-consciously so. It's very self-conscious on his part. So let me turn now in continuing to the consideration of the hierarchy of being and the ontological ontological history of meaning. Within this sapiential perspective, or wisdom perspective on created realities, Aquinas posits a hierarchy of perfections that is found within created being. This form of hierarchical thinking about ontology has its origins in ancient Neoplatonism, including authors like Plotinus, Proclus, Augustine, and Dionysius. But it is also found in medieval Muslim and Christian thinkers like Avicenna and Albert the Great, all of whom have influenced Aquinas in diverse ways. At the same time, Aquinas has his own ontology, as we have seen, and so he characterizes the hierarchy of being in distinctive ways. Now, I would just say here, the classic distinction is being, life, knowledge. Okay, that's the the Neoplatonic triad. It's, It's good to exist. It's better to exist and live. It's better to exist and live and know. So there's a hierarchy here according to a kind of... Particular, it's a particular, it's a disputable hierarchy. I mean, it's a controversial, disputable hierarchicalization. But being, being that is living, 
being that is living and knowing, and within animals, being and living that is knowing, that sensate knowing, and then intellectual knowing. All the animals know with sensate knowledge, only human beings know with intellectual knowledge. Okay. Aquinas differentiates four basic species of substance, non-living beings, vegetative beings, animals, and human beings. Much of what we experience in the physical world are material, non-living substances. We can differentiate these from living substances. Aquinas seems to distinguish vegetative substances, plants, from animals because the latter have sensate faculties and local motion, ontologically specific characteristics, and I should say knowledge. Animals have knowledge. Not conceptual, but they have intuition, they have inten sensate intentions. He does not, however, interpret characteristic differences among animals as requiring an affirmation of ontologically distinct species of animal in any strong ontological sense. Animals are all sensate living beings characterized by accidental differences. In other words, birds and chimpanzees are not metaphysically distinct species. I understand they're biologically distinct species, of course. But they're not metaphysically distinct species in the philosophical sense of the word. So one animal could, in principle, evolve from another without a change in specific kind, but only a change in accidental properties. If you go from the salamander to the lizard, or from the chimpanzee to Homo erectus, you don't have to posit a specific change. You can posit an accidental change. This is an interpretation of Aquinas. Is an interpretation of Aquinas. Furthermore, St. Thomas thinks that it is possible, at least in principle, for living things to arise historically from non-living material bodies, even if life represents a principle not merely reducible to material parts in their quantitative arrangement. So this is interesting. Aquinas thinks living things are specifically different in metaphysical species, different from non-living things. But he thinks at least it's possible, it may be the case, that living things initially arose from non-living things. And he does not think that that's ontologically impossible. Consequently, Aquinas is able to situate a differentiated hierarchy of being from non-living beings to plants to animals to human beings within a gradated ontological spectrum that allows for the progressive emergence of higher forms from lower ones. I don't think Aquinas would have a problem with evolution. He'd have his own way of interpreting it. Philosophical. He'd have his own philosophy of evolution. But I don't think he'd have a problem with evolution. The human being, meanwhile, marks a distinct kind of being within the spectrum of animal life because the human being has rational characteristics of abstractive intelligence and free will. Both of these necessarily imply immaterial features which thereby give indirect but real philosophical evidence of the immateriality of the human soul. The human being is a bridge then between the material and immaterial worlds. This is a Neoplatonic idea from Greco-Roman philosophy that man is the bridge between the visible world and the invisible. Where the man is the summit of the visible world, the highest thing in the visible world, and is the, is the doorway, the gate to the invisible world. <coughs> Let us consider briefly an, the overview that Aquinas gives in Summa Contradictiles, Book 3, Chapter 22, Paragraph 7 through 9. It's long, but I'm going to read it. Just be brave. Now, among acts pertaining to forms, certain gradations are found. Thus, prime matter is in potency, first of all, to the form of an element. When it is existing under the form of an element, it is in potency to the form of a mixed body. For an element, an element for Aquinas is the most basic, simple. And a mixed body is a, is a collection of the simple elements. It would be like atoms to you know, a larger physical body for us, but he has his own medieval understanding of elements. <coughs> that is why elements are matter for the mixed body. Considered under the form of a mixed body, uh, it is in potency to a vegetative soul. Okay, so the mixed body, a, a natural body, is in potency to the vegetative soul. For this sort of soul is the act of a body. In turn, the vegetative soul is in potency to a sensitive soul, huh? and a sensitive one to an intellectual one. That, that just sounds like evolutionary theory right there. Huh? 
You go from non-living things, our impotency, to have being a world in which an environment in which you have living things, living things, vegetative things, or an environment in which you can have emerged sensate things. Now he goes. On, why is he thinking of? He doesn't know about evolution, but he knows about the embryo. Okay, so that's what he goes. It turns to the, um, this. This, the process of generation, shows at the start of generation, there is the embryo living with plant life. He means vegetative life, not, not, no sensations. Later with animal life, you know, the baby in the womb kicking with sensations. And finally with human life. The child is now talking to you. After this last, last type of form and later and most, after this last type of form, no later and more noble form is found in the order of generable and corruptible things. Therefore, the ultimate end of the whole process of generation is the human soul. And matter tends towards it as an ultimate form. So there he's saying, if the human being is this summit because it's a spiritual animal, then just as we see in embryology, so we see in cosmology. The universe exists so you can have living things. Living things exist so you can have rational animals. So the human being is the center of the cosmos, not spatially, but ontologically. It's an interesting claim, you know, that we're there's gradations of being, and and prime matter was a, prime matter was created so that there could exist the human body. It's an interesting claim. The, the spiritual nobility of the human body is the perfection of the life of matter. Human beings give nobility to matter in a way nothing else could. So elements exist for the sake of mixed bodies, these latter exist for the sake of living bodies, among which plants exist for animals and animals for men. Therefore man is the end of the whole order of generation. And since a thing is generated and preserved in being by the same reality, there's also an order in the preservation of things which parallels the foregoing order of generation. Thus we see that mixed bodies are sustained by the appropriate qualities of the elements. You know, the universe has a certain stability through the relationships of the parts of the universe. Plants, in turn, are nourished by mixed bodies. Plants live from non-physical things, like, the, like water and light, not photosynthesis. Animals get their nourishment from plants so that those are more perfect and more powerful from those that are more, more imperfect and weaker. In fact, man uses all kinds of things for his advantage, some for food, others for clothing, others he uses for transportation. And in addition to this, man uses all sense objects for the perfection of intellectual knowledge. Right, so we don't just use the natural world and plants and the animals for practical reason, but ultimately as the theater for the exploration of truth. The most noble thing we can do with the universe is learn truth from the universe. And in addition to this, okay, sorry. Hence it is said in, of man in the Psalms, in a, this is the Bible, in a statement directed to God, you have, su you have subject, subjected all things under his feet. And Aristotle says in the politics that man has natural dominion over all animals. So if the motion of the heavens is ordered to generation of living things, and if the whole of the generation of living things is ordered to man as the last end within this genus, it is clear that the end of celestial motion is ordered to man as to an ultimate end in the gen genus of generable and mobile being. Okay. This is a strong philosophical claim. Modern physicists talk about this as the, anthropomorph the anthropic principle. Right? That you can see a kind of set of conditions already in the initial origins of the universe that permit the possibility of the emergence of life and that once you have the emergence of the of, you, of light, living things, you see more and more complex organizational forms, and then you have the, the emergence of the human person, which is a, a highest form of human of, of living thing. This passage gives us a cosmic metaphysical picture of a certain kind. Let us note certain various details. First, the material elements and celestial motions that Aquinas refers to are his medieval notion of the most basic principles of physical non-living things, the elements, and the most ultimate cosmic forces, the celestial motions. We would talk about maybe the four basic physical forces of physics. His point is that the physical world is composed of mixed bodies made of smaller, more basic elements, and that these mixed bodies are subject to natural forces such that they exist within a larger, holistic, physical system. 
within this larger cosmic context, life can come to exist and be sustained under certain conditions. Vegetative life is nourished from non-living things, while animals live primarily from eating plants and other animals. Consequently, the non-living world is at the foundation of all sustainable vegetative and animal life and is the environmental condition sine qua non for the existence of life. Second, there is a hierarchy of perfection in nature based on the development of vital interiority. The theme of interiority is primarily Augustinian, and Aquinas develops this in a very Aristotelian way. Non-living things have no vital interiority, internal self-developing, self-developing organic structure, including the computer and the artificial intelligence. It has no internal developmental structure of organic process. Plants do have these capacities, but are not able to know the reality around them and have no sense appetites. Animals, meanwhile, have the vital interiority of sense cognition, the interiority of sensing and knowing through senses. Therefore, unlike plants, they have sense knowledge and sense appetites, but do not have spiritual cognition, conceptual, rational understanding and judgment, or free will. Human beings have a distinctively spiritual form of vital interiority, They are able to understand reality rationally and make free human deliberative choices, even while being themselves sensate animals and having a vegetative life, such as processes of nutrition, and basic physical existence as bodies within the larger physical cosmos. So in other words, human beings have the highest degree of interiority, including spiritual powers of reason and free will, but they also recapitulate within themselves each of the lower dimensions of perfection one finds in physical nature. This is the classical idea of man as a microcosmos. Microcosmos within the macrocosmos. Third, Aquinas is thinking in some real sense of a developmental perspective in which a cosmos of non-living realities exists as the presupposition of living things and in which the more perfect living things can come to be from those that are less perfect. He seems to favor here some kind of emergentism of living things from non-living things, or at least suggests its plausibility. The example of the embryo in the middle of the passage is significant. He thinks that the more complex forms of life can develop gradually from less complex forms of life. In this sense, most of his modern interpreters believe his metaphysics can accommodate gracefully the information provided by modern evolutionary theory. After all, Aquinas follows Augustine in thinking that it's possible that living things came about originally from non-living things, and he posits no specific ontological difference between the diverse forms of animals who might alter their distinctive attributes gradually over a vast time frame. (coughs) Nevertheless, Aquinas is quite clear that he does not think that human spiritual operations can be explained adequately from sensate powers or physical states of matter in the human body. Aspects of human cognition, such as universal conceptual understanding, self-reflexivity, the knowledge of the self in the act of knowing, and free self-determination, free decision-making, free will, all imply the existence of immaterial features of human knowing and willing, and ultimately behind these, an immaterial soul that is the form of the human body. Consequently, Aquinas thinks that the human person is ontologically distinct from the other animals as having spiritual features and a spiritual soul. If the body might arise through a vast chain of cosmic processes, the soul is created immediately by God. Now, Aquinas argues this at great length, philosophically, in Summa Contra Gentile's book two. He looks at all these other ideas, transmigration of souls, whether the soul can arise from uh, reincarnation, whether the soul can arise from material processes. And he argues that the only satisfying philosophical idea is that God creates the soul in the embryonic life of each, in, in the, uh, after the new human being is conceived by the parents, God directly creates the spiritual soul of each human person. This is his philosophical viewpoint. The human being then is a spiritual animal as a spiritual animal forms a kind of bridge between the physical world and the immaterial world and stands on the cusp of the two. Aquinas is not a dualist like Descartes. He rejects the idea that the soul is a separate substance from the human body 
as if we were two things, a body and a soul, two substances. On the contrary, the body and soul form one substantial whole for Aquinas, where the soul is the form of the body and the body is the matter of the soul. But the soul contains spiritual operations and so is ultimately incorruptible, at least in part, even after death, while the body and the vegetative and sensate powers of the human being, sensations, imagination, emotions, sense appetite, all depend upon the human body for their continued existence and are all subject to corruption at death. Aquinas does not offer us a philosophical picture of what he thinks happens to the soul of the human person after death. He believes that the philosopher has no adequate access to this kind of information by resources of natural reason alone and considers the question open. You know, he's a little bit like, he's not all that different from Kant. I mean, Kant thinks you should be agnostic about the immaterial soul and what happens after death. Aquinas thinks you should be philosophically convicted about the immaterial soul, but agnostic about what happens after death. But both of them believe in a, in a philosophical delimitation of, of, of reason, of what reason can know. There's religion within the limits of reason in Aquinas. It's just that he draws the line in a different place. William of Ockham is closer to Kant in thinking you cannot prove the soul. He believes he has an immaterial soul for religious reasons. He does not believe he can demonstrate it. It's just interesting. You know, that Aquinas has this delimitization from reason of what we can know about things after death. Okay. <coughs> he thinks it's, one, it's a question that the religious traditions seek to, to answer. Aquinas believes may be addressed by Christian revelation. This is a place where Aquinas the philosopher concedes the terrain to Aquinas the theologian. However, it is clear that Aquinas does think that philosophy can validate the perspectives of persons like Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, and Boethius, who believe that the contemplation of God and the consideration of all things in light of God formed the natural lodestar, that's the star of orientation on the sea, when you're, when you're a ship and you're looking for the star to teach you which way to go. The natural lodestar or perfecting end of the human intellect. In this way, Aquinas takes upon himself the mantle of the classic philosophers who saw philosophy as an appropriate way to prepare for death by seeking rational knowledge of God and by living in the truth with regard to the objective structure of reality. Even though he's a Christian theologian, he has and sees himself as an inheritor also of the Greco-Roman philosophers. Okay, objections. There are any number, many, many good objections one can pose to elements of Aquinas' metaphysics. And since we have given an overview here, there are dozens of pertinent objections that might be mentioned. However, here I will consider only a few that seem especially important within the context of contemporary philosophical landscape. Objection one, Hume and Kant on causality. The first objection is very basic, so basic that if it were warranted, it would undercut the entire project of metaphysics as Aquinas understands it. This is the objection that we cannot gain certain causal knowledge of realities we sense around us. Here I am speaking not only of formal causality and final causality as something inherent in nature's, <coughs> which Hume problematizes, huh? Hume problematizes, but also of efficient causality, as when we say one thing really occurs because it is caused by the action of another thing. One might posit, like Hume, that such notions of formal, final, and efficient causality are primarily heuristic ideas of the mind, representational constructions, by which we conventionally construe there to be relationships of antecedent and consequent events in our sense experience. These provisional notions of the mind permit us to organize our sense knowledge by way of stable processes of thinking, and we can conduct the experiments of modern science using these constructions. But they do not give us real, adequate penetration of understanding into the structure of reality as such. So Hume. Therefore, just insofar as a form of knowledge is based upon empirical quantitative measures of material particles, it is likely to be warranted and certain. But just insofar as it is based on supposedly penetrating metaphysical insights into the natures and causes of reality, it is more likely to be arbitrary and projective 
stemming from the subjective constructions of the mind rather than certain and trustworthy. This skeptical thesis is recast by Kant in more stable terms. For Kant, the human mind must inevitably seek to understand our sense experience by using the categories of substance, causation, and teleology. But these notions are always to be employed critically. They are usefully employed, and even in a sense necessary for thinking about sense experience. But we must also say that we can know through a rigorous a priorist inventory of the activity of the transcendental subject that these notions have a merely regulatory epistemological function. They regulate how we think. They don't penetrate into the structure of reality so much as they regulate our organization of sense experiences. They help us organize our sense knowledge and structure our empirical progress in understanding, principally through the modern scientific method, Newtonian physics, which we heard about. But they do not give us insight into the natures of the things in themselves, at least as understood in a classical way. Thus, the skeptical line articulated all too briefly. Very rough. Rough Hume, rough Kant, but just to give you an idea, this is a you know, traditional, you know, traditional objection. In brief response, we should first distinguish. Aquinas knows that the senses can be prone to error. For example, when a sense organ is damaged, as when our eyesight degrades as we get older and we see things in a blurry way. But the question of when and why we should trust our senses, which generally we should, is distinct for Aquinas from whether we can trust our concepts and our properly intellectual understanding of reality. That's not a response to Kant. That's just, I'm just saying Aquinas, you have to distinguish between can your senses fool you and can your mind fool you? Right? Those are two different problems. Skepticism about senses is different from skepticism about causal knowledge. On this second point, Aquinas clearly distinguishes rational demonstrations of principles of metaphysical realism, such as form and matter or substance and accents, from the initial more fundamental principles of metaphysical knowledge that make these demonstrations possible. So when he encounters a skeptic, Aquinas says, well, there are things that can be demonstrated and there are things that cannot be demonstrated that are always known per se nota, like the principle of non-contradiction. The knowledge of first principles is simply given and cannot be demonstrated because otherwise we would have to demonstrate everything incessantly, or put otherwise, we, would, we, we would, could demonstrate nothing ever because we would have no primary knowledge to build on. The, first, uh, the knowledge of first principles is non-demonstrative because it pertains to things that everyone always already knows in however confused and general way. This is the example of the ice cream cone. Right, we looked at the example of the child of the ice cream cone. Do not try to tell the, ice cream, the kid with the ice cream cone that the ice cream is on at the cone when it's on the ground. He knows the principle of non-contradiction. What is included in, the knowledge, in, the, in, this, in the form of knowledge that is prior to rational criticism and that all human beings cannot fail to have. Aquinas thinks that among such knowledge is, first, basic insight into the categorial modes of being. All people can tell the difference between quantity and quality, as well as a thing and its properties. He just thinks you know it, per se nota. So like a child can tell the difference between the parent and the property of the parent. The, vo the, the, the sound of the voice comes from the parent. And the child knows that the sound of the voice comes from the parent. It's a property of the parent, or an action, an effect, really, of an action of the parent. Second, basic insight into the transcendentals. All human beings have some basic sense of being, of truth, and of falsehood, of good and of evil, no matter how embryonic and confused. That's why you can get the first principle of non-contradiction, because you can have some general knowledge of being. The ice cream is on the cone. The ice cream is on the ground. What exists? What is real? And goodness, the first practical syllogism, do good, avoid evil. There's always some inevitable knowledge of good and evil as soon as you have human agency. Or human agency requires you already have some basic knowledge of good and evil, even if it's not very enlightened, even if it's very, very fragile. So then thirdly, the principle of non-contradiction. And fourth, the, the knowledge of basic causes, such as formal causality, efficient causality, and final causality. 
So for Aquinas, you don't prove final causality. You already know that some things happen. That If you see me walking across the room in this cup, you can infer that there's a purpose to my action. And even children can infer purposes, tendencies towards perfection. He, he thinks it's very basic. So basically, Aquinas thinks that thinkers like Hume and Kant do have realistic metaphysical knowledge of some sort, and this realistic knowledge is even required as a condition for making skeptical arguments of the kind that they do that attempts to problematize the basic knowledge that they presuppose. The only way to demonstrate how, this, however, is by arguments of retortion, dialectical arguments of the kind Aristotle makes against the sophists in, book Metaphys- in Metaphysics Book 4, where he seeks to show that even the skeptic must presuppose the existence of something in some, in, in some such way as to affirm an ontology of formal, final, and efficient causes of the categories and of the principle of non-contradiction as a condition for making the skeptical argument intelligible in the first place. I mean, if I want to problematize your knowledge and I point out at the world, okay, look at that over there, and then I begin to problematize it, I need to at least have you already referring to the world that you and I are already knowing in common. Now, this is a particular argument of strategy. If you have never read it, maybe everyone here has read it, but if you have never read it, you must read Metaphysics Book 4, of, of, uh, because especially the second half, where he really looks at the critical arguments of the sophists for skeptics, and Aristotle responds to them. It's fascinating. It's totally... I mean, the, the interlocutors are the same interlo- posing the same arguments as you find in postmodernism. If you read Derrida or Foucault, and then you go read Book Four of the Metaphysics, same objections. It's, it's very fascinating. Well, they're they're similar, very similar objections. Now, one can do this with Kant, this argument of strategy of Aquinas, with regards to the structures of the transcendental subject, for example, which are identified as a priori conditions for knowledge clearly identifiable in all human acts of knowing. When, when you catalog the transcendental subject for Kant, this kind of ontology of the knowing subject, after all, after all, uh, this is a kind of ontology of the knowing subject, after all. It presupposes a causal analysis of the knowing agent. Now, Kantians might reject that, but I think you can make the argument from the way Kant describes the transcendental subject. He's describing it in causal terms, the way the in- human intellect acts when it organizes sense experience. You have to use causal ascriptions to analyze the transcendental subject. One can do this with the empiricist by showing that the affirmations of the measurability of quantifiable reality always presupposes other ontological determinations than quantity, such as position and relation, and that this ontological diversity itself already points to a plurality of categorical modes of being. In other words, empiricists themselves already know multiple categories of being when they act as philosophical empiricists. This is sort of the idea that uh, uh, Tian Wu Yu was talking about, Professor Yu was talking about last night about uh, identifying that you need a theory of, a metaphysical theory of causal powers to explain the world scientifically. If you look at how an atom functions or a chemical functions or a biological agent functions, they have causal powers. And so that then gives you a deeper ontology of the properties of the thing. That would be the idea of a strategy of argumentation. Insofar as the mind can measure any unified thing, and that unified thing has a plurality of categorical properties, properties other than quantity, then the mind must engage in some form of substance ontology as a precondition for the practice of the empirical measurement of the physical world. That, that was a strong claim. Do you see what I just said? Very strong thing. The mind needs to uh, engage in some form of substance ontology as a precondition for the practice of the empirical measurement of the physical world. Why? Because otherwise one has no real individual essences to which one can attribute a diversity of properties really united in the reality itself in concrete ways. And so the practice of the modern sciences would be groundless because you would not be able to attribute the properties to unified kinds single kinds of things. In this approach, rapidly sketched, Aristotelian Thomism has greater resources for explaining what is happening epistemologically when we attempt to understand physical reality realistically than do the respective philosophies or Hume or, or Kant. Now, I have not, you know, that's a long argument to make. 
but I'm just giving you a brief overview. Okay, secondly, how are we doing? We're doing okay. Kant and Heidegger on ontotheology. A second objection has to do with the orientation of Aquinas' metaphysics towards an explanation of reality by reference to immaterial causation more generally and monotheism in particular. A frequent modern objection is that this kind of classical metaphysics springs from what both Immanuel Kant and Martin Heidegger call in different ways ontotheology. Kant develops this notion of ontotheology extensively in the Critique of Pure Reason and relates it to his notion of the speculative antinomies of reason. Here we can note briefly claims that are of particular importance. First, Kant thinks that our, that should be our, our conceptual use of the notion of causality, particularly efficient causality, is only warranted when it refers to objects of knowledge that arise within the horizon of empirical sensate experience. It is epistemologically unwarranted and illusory to extend the notion of causality beyond empirical sensate realities into the domain of supposedly immaterial non-sensate causation. Immaterial reality is an illusion of transcendental reason. It's an illusion to think about immaterial causality. Second, Kant believes that any possible argument for the existence of God, be it so-called cosmological or teleological, his terms, <coughs> depends ultimately upon the ontological argument, which is found in a typical form in Descartes' meditations. Now this means that for Kant, all monotheistic argumentation is ultimately dependent upon an a priori mental presupposition of a perfect being, the idea of which entails necessary existence for that being, because in the ontological argument, a perfect being would be a being that does exist, so if I can conceive of a perfect being, the perfect being must exist. Third, unlike Descartes, Kant holds that such an idea, such an idea to be a pure construct of speculative human reason and, and not to demonstrate the existence of God in any effective way. But at the same time, he also holds against Hume that there are no, excuse me, there are no supervening reasons that one must reject the possibility of such an idea corresponding to reality. In other words, we cannot discount the possibility that God exists, nor can we prove it. Theoretical agnosticism. Furthermore, pure reason should naturally, according to Kant, orient itself towards such an idea in order to construct an overarching system of explanation for the world of contingent limited beings so as to understand them against the backdrop of an idea of infinite necessary beings. It's, God is a helpful idea for thinking metaphysically about reality. That does not mean that God exists. But it's actually necessary to employ the concept of God to think about your, your experience metaphysically. What does all this mean? Clearly for Kant, the existence of God can never be either proven or disproven by appeal to philosophical argument. The mind is inevitably, necessarily agnostic in this regard. However, the idea of God is important for speculative reason as a kind of overarching hypothesis that allows us to organize our thinking about reality into a unified whole. Concepts like the soul and the cosmos are similar the notion of the soul allows us to organize our vague notions of a self or of personal identity and moral responsibility into a whole. And the notion of the cosmos allows us to unify our knowledge of the sciences into a unity. Now Heidegger follows Kant in considering ontotheology as a construct of human reason. But unlike Kant, he thinks that this construction of reason that seeks to explain all of being in light of God as the first being or supreme being is a historically contingent, erroneous form of Enlightenment European thought. Bad Descartes, bad Leibniz, bad Bloomgarten. In other words, it is a problematic construction of reason that seeks to give ultimate explanation of reality in problematic, idealist ways, and one that should now be reprobated. In its place, I mean, that sounds like Feuerbach too, right? It sounds like Feuerbach, it sounds a little bit like Marx, like Freud. Okay. In its place, Heidegger posits his famous ontology of being as Sein in German and beings, Seindes, 
that takes inspiration from, Par- from Parmenides and that is akin to a modern form of pantheism. Uh, there's a lot of ways to interpret Heidegger. It's, it's maybe not pantheistic. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. This is another debate. We leave it to the side. In, in modern Thomistic literature, there is a great deal written on these controversial topics. Here I will limit myself to three comments. Now, I have a book on this subject, so I brought uh, it here electronically. If you would like a copy, I can give you. It's in the documents I gave you. If you, have a, you, know, if you, if you took the documents I gave you, I, re- I did try to write a book about this subject. Here I will limit myself to three comments. First, it is true that we cannot attribute causality to immaterial realities in a univocal sense. Because univocal ascription presupposes an identity of essential kind. And if there is an immaterial activity of the human soul, for example, or God, then this immaterial activity is not of the same essential kind as material activity as such. So like if I say, you're a human being, you're a human being, you're a human being, it's univocal ascription because you have the same essence. We all have the same essence. That is a tree, that is a tree, that is a tree. But when you get into causality, it's a lot more flexible and analogical because there's a lot of kinds of causality. We can make ontological attributions of causality analogically to immaterial reality. If Aquinas is correct about the basic ontology of the categories, then we employ analogical terms like being, unity, truth, and goodness all the time, even to talk about empirical sensate realities. We use analogical concepts all the time, like goodness. Goodness is an analogical concept. It's a super important word, unity. Super important, one, okay? So we already think analogically about being in a whole host of ordinary experiential realities. We can also then extend this pattern of analogical thinking from what is more immediately and better well known to us to what is more remote to our experience and less well-known. In fact, we do this all the time in the modern sciences, where we explain the material composition of larger realities by recourse to analogies drawn from sensate objects to speak about particle physics, for example, waves and particles. You have never seen an atomic wave or a particle. Okay? It's an image drawn from ordinary sensate experience applied analogically to a very small thing that we don't experience immediately. But that doesn't mean that waves and particles, what we call waves and particles, don't exist. They exist. If we can use analogy to speak about things that are not immediately perceptible to the senses in the modern sciences, we can also do so in our philosophical anthropology or our metaphysics. And by the way, Heidegger does it himself all the time when he speaks about his own conception of being, especially in his later works, he talks, starts about being as the origin and ground of reality. Well, okay, origin and ground, it's an analogical concept of causality. You can, you know, so he, he breaks his own rules. Second, Aquinas obviously agrees with Kant that the ontological argument for the existence of God does not work and is, we might say, a construct of pure reason. Kant is more an ally of Aquinas on this point than he is an opponent because he allows one to diagnose the idealism that is present in a whole host of modern European Enlightenment philosophers from Descartes to Malebranche to Leibniz, but also in the anti-theism of those who reject the problematic conceptions of God one finds in those philosophers, Feuerbach, Nietzsche, Freud. For Aquinas, the idea of God is not given to the mind a priori, and the arguments are developed a posteriori only on the basis of the structure of ontologically dependent realities that we perceive around us. We have to first look at the external reality around us and look at its ontological constitution. In other words, God is not posited as a hypothetical presupposition of intelligibility for the structures of things one finds in the world but as a necessary conclusion to a process of reasoning about why we have the kind of concrete world that we perceive in ordinary experience. God is not known conceptually by an essential definition, but only analogically, indirectly, and inferentially based on imperfect notions we draw from finite creatures. There may well be other problems with Aquinas' argument but they are not subject as such to the critique of Kant 
on the terms that Kant posits. And again, I think the critique of Kant is helpful against certain bad forms of theistic argumentation. Finally, what should we say to Heidegger's claim that philosophical monotheism amounts to a form of arbitrary explanation of reality derived from a historically problematic philosophical tradition that is not warranted or viable? Here, we hear echoes of the ideas of Friedrich Nietzsche in his critique of Western monotheism. The basic response to this claim should be, I think, that the meaning of reality is not created by each of us artistically, but is discovered based on the real structure of being. And this just goes back to what I was saying about Sartre. Sartre is very much like Nietzsche on this point, about the kind of freedom of artistic creation of meaning. Questions of existence and non-being, of the one and the many, of the truth of reality, and of goodness and beauty, these questions are all posed to us based on the true nature of reality. To admit this does not entail that one should immediately conclude to the metaphysical plausibility of monotheism as an ultimate explanation of reality. You don't study Thomistic metaphysics just so we hurry up and believe in monotheism. It's not an apologetics or an ideology. You can study, actually, you can just not study Aquinas on monotheism and just look at his ontology. It's a very rich engagement with ordinary reality. But if one admits the philosophical questions raised by the transcendentals of Aquinas, then monotheism becomes a serious, a serious intellectual possibility and cannot be dismissed readily, as Heidegger seems to want to do in an almost a priori fashion. Furthermore, if there is a real metaphysical problem of being, or the good, or the truth, then the subjective idealism of Nietzsche, with its deeply anti-realist strains of thinking, becomes increasingly implausible, and his objections should themselves be subject to critical scrutiny. So I'm, I'm saying that the issue is really more, is, is philosophy realist? If you're a realist and you're trying to understand the structure of reality, then I think a lot of the ways of thinking of Nietzsche and Heidegger on this question about God are undermined because you're already engaging with reality that, philosophically in a realistic way and you're trying to ask the question about the real possibility of monotheism as a cause. Okay, objection three. We're almost finished. Neo-Darwinian skepticism regarding chance, development, and teleology. A final objection stems from neo-Darwinian notions of the physical evolution of creatures. The objection is simple. Modern Darwinian theory insists that the gradual transformation of living organisms occurs over time through changes in genetic mutation that are the result of random accidents in gene combination. So there is then the process of survival of the fittest by which those organisms that have advantages derived from random genetic mutation, survive, and are more likely to reproduce, which reinforces the continued transmission of a given genetic mutation. Over time, this process amounts to the development of diverse organisms attaining new and distinctive forms of biological organization. However, this means that the distinctions found in living things are derived essentially by a process of chance, one that has no deeper metaphysical causal explanation or transcendent meaning. Living forms evolve by chance through random genetic mutation and the survival of the fittest. The Thomistic theory of natural causes, be they formal causes of natures or final causes of purposes, is inapplicable to living things, and the explanations of a hierarchy of being that Thomism offers in living things, plants, animals, human beings, is outdated in a modern scientific age. Now, to my mind, this objection is largely based on sophism. I'm much more impressed by Kant than this objection. Thomistic metaphysics has little difficulty accepting the totality of modern evolutionary science, but it does make some distinctions that are of significance for a philosophical interpretation of evolution. Evolution is a very reasonable scientific hypothesis with a basis in many factually evident realities. It is not a philosophy or a metaphysics, and many different kinds of philosophies, philosophers would, seem to, would seek to explain the factual support for evolution in different ways. Here let us simply note two ideas from Aquinas that are helpful. First, it is true 
that chance exists in the world and on a large scale, not only in the random encounters that take place between inorganic realities or living things, but also in human agency and in human history. At some point, the parents of each of us here met by chance, unintentionally, and that is how each of us ultimately came to be, because our parents had a child together after meeting accidentally and eventually getting to know each other and deciding to get married. So chance is consequential, and a lot of things in human history happen first by chance, and they have huge consequences. But chance events, Aquinas notes, only ever exist between realities that, are, that themselves have some kind of pre-existing intelligibility, order, and causal pattern of behavior. For our parents to meet, they had to each be intending to go somewhere and do something which led them accidentally to meet one another. There was ordered behavior happening on parts of each, uh, each, uh, on each of their parts. Similarly, the chance alterations of genetic material that occur in organic cells presuppose the order of the genetic code in each reality and its orientation towards cellular reproduction. Formal and final causes are the presupposition of events of chance, and so the existence of chance events confirms the existence of such ordered patterns in nature at any number of levels, be they subatomic, atomic, cellular, chemical, cellular, or organic. Now, I was, I'm being mischievous there. I'm being mischievous. But this is basically the argument of Aristotle. You cannot understand chance unless you, pro unless you first posit causality. You need to think about chance. Chance is what comes outside of causality, ordinary causality, proper causality. But to think about it, you have to already know proper causality. You can only say, say things happen by chance when you actually know there's proper cause and that this is not attributable to proper cause. Accidental causality. There is no world available to us where we encounter pure chance, chemically pure chance. You go to the supermarket, you ask someone in the supermarket, can I have some, where do you sell chemically pure chance? Oh, it's, it's, on, it's on aisle seven. You can't take a bottle of chemically pure chance home because it's always already embedded in an ordered teleologically inclined form of reality. Chance happens to ordered realities in per accidents encounters with each other, accidental encounters with each other. It's why you could call it this way. Chance is an ontological parasite. Chance is an ontological parasite. It's like a virus. It can't live on its own. Okay. Second and finally, Aquinas, as, it, uh, as we have seen, has no problem with the idea that living things might emerge from non-living things <clears throat> and that higher or more complex forms of living things might come from less complex, lower forms. He's even open to the idea that sensate animals might emerge from non-sensate vegetative living things. He also thinks that the animal processes of sense knowledge depend upon the physical organs of the animal and have no special existence apart from the body. It is important, however, that he distinguishes clearly between the formal element of a living operation and its material constituent parts. We can study the eye of an animal that is seeing, say a tiger, and look at the integrity of all the material parts of the eye and the physical processes involved in sight. But this form of analysis is never complete since we also need to consider this same act of seeing philosophically and to ask the question of what the tiger in question knows about the sensate realities around it. How does this knowledge differ from that of under human understanding, for example? These formal questions, questions about the form of eyesight, not just its material causality, as studied by the sciences, but its philosophical intelligibility, the formal nature of eyesight. What, do you, what is it to see something, to see a color, to see a building that's on the other side of the city? The building is on the other side of the city, and it's in me. That's a philosophical problem. These formal questions of the nature of seeing and the nature of intellectual understanding do not oblige us to ignore the material questions of what the human body is or how the human brain works. On the contrary, they require that we take such questions seriously. But they do invite us also to consider the operations of complex organisms in a holistic, in holistic non-reductionistic ways. In this respect, Thomism is not opposed to modern science at all, but it preserves an irreplaceable role for the philosophy of nature, 
one that takes account of scientific knowledge, but which also seeks to integrate it into a larger philosophical understanding of reality. In this vision of things, order and chance both exist in our world, and order leads us to discover a pattern of deeper intelligibility in things, one that causes us to admire the world in all its richness of being, of unity and multiplicity, of goodness and truth and beauty. As forms of knowledge, metaphysics and modern science are not inherently opposed. On the contrary, they are profoundly complementary forms of knowledge that can greatly mutually enrich one another. Thank you very much.